0: Welcome to the Independent News Hour. In the news today, the fate of a promised $1,400 check for struggling Americans is up for grabs. New York City's vaccination program stalls due to lack of supplies, and Chicago teachers refuse to die for their jobs. Good evening. In New York, I'm John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find our latest coverage at independent.org. In the news, the $2,000 stimulus check promised by President Joe Biden earlier this month has since become a $1,400 check and is now a, quote, moving target, according to Biden, as negotiations continue on his proposed $1.9 trillion pandemic relief plan. I don't expect we'll know whether we have an agreement and to what extent the entire package will be able to
1: pass or not pass until we get right down to the very end of this process, which will be
0: probably in a couple of weeks. But the point is, this is just the process beginning. Several Republican senators are calling for the stimulus checks to be narrowly targeted to only the most desperate Americans instead of anyone earning under $75,000 per year as was the case with two previous stimulus checks that went out under former President Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell has dropped his demand that Senate Democrats promise not to scrap the filibuster, the archaic Senate rule that requires most legislation to receive a 60-vote supermajority to pass. The Democrats currently hold a narrow one-vote majority and have little hope of passing ambitious legislation with broad Republican support. While President Biden tries to find common ground with Republicans, newly-seated Senate Budget Committee Chairman Bernie Sanders is urging Democrats to use parliamentary tactics that require only a simple majority to move an ambitious agenda that includes monthly $2,000 checks, expanded unemployment insurance, emergency medical coverage for Americans during the pandemic, and a $15 minimum wage. People are watching this program do not have food in their cupboards to feed their kids. They are sick, they cannot afford to go to the doctor. They cannot afford the outrageously high cost of prescription drugs. They're worried about climate change and what that will mean for their kids and future generations. That is where we are right now. And the American people say, we elected you guys. Do something, improve our lives. We are in pain, we are hurting. Activists are also calling for Biden to be much more aggressive about abolishing $1.7 trillion in student loan debt owed by 45 million Americans. We will talk with two of them after the headlines. The post-holidays spike in COVID-19 cases has begun declining across much of the country, including here in New York. Governor Andrew Cuomo says he will greenlight limited business reopenings, but indoor dining will still be prohibited.
1: I think we're at a new place now, and we can start to adjust that valve uh, and start to open up more economic uh, activity and reduce some of the restrictions. The indoor dining in New York City is a New York City-specific uh, condition, and uh, we're not, at this point, uh, contemplating any change.
0: Even as the spread of the virus eases, the city's efforts to deliver the new COVID-19 vaccine is faltering due to a lack of supplies, according to Mayor Bill de Blasio look we have mega sites like city field and yankee stadium ready to go uh...
1: we want to get those to be full-blown 24-hour operations but we don't have the vaccine. We've got local neighborhood providers, folks who are at the front line, who can build trust, who can get folks from the neighborhood to come in, who speak their language, ready to go. We want to have a really neighborhood-based approach to vaccination, decentralized right down to the grassroots. We could be doing that right now, but we don't have the supply.
0: In Chicago, the 30,000 members of the Chicago Teachers Union are refusing to continue in-class instruction due to COVID concerns defying the city's mayor. For their safety, they are only teaching remotely. This is special ed teacher Don Kelly.
2: All we're asking for is our employer to meet us partway, to come to the table with our union leaders and negotiate. Negotiate a safer town for all staff members and for students.
0: In the second half of the show, we'll talk with New York City mayoral candidate Art Chang about how he would handle the pandemic and much more. And finally, 1,400 workers at the Hunts Point Produce Market in the South Bronx have returned to work after a week-long strike. The labor battle garnered national attention after Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez appeared on the picket line last week. The workers' new contract includes a pay raise of almost 10% over the next three years, this is Francisco Flores of Teamsters Local 202 speaking with the independents Amber Gagarian about why the workers took the risk of striking.
1: We are here, you know, for a dollar raise, so for some uh, appreciation for us being out here the whole year during the pandemic, taking care of the people of this city, and even taking care of the bosses, you know, taking care of their places of business, making sure everything is running and everything is in good order. And. You know, just for the fact of what we've been through this past year. Not just us here, everybody across the nation. We've had friends die, people get sick, you can't see your loved ones. So for us to win this and to get the appreciation of the owners would mean the
0: world to us. We will be back after a short break. When we return, I will speak with a pair of activists who are organizing a debtor's union to force the government to address the student loan debt crisis in this country. A new day has come by Celine Dion, and you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI Radio in New York. I'm John Tarleton. Joe Biden begins his presidency at a moment when 45 million Americans collectively owe $1.7 trillion in student loan debt, or an average of about $35,000 per debtor. The federal government is the guarantor of most of that debt, and with one stroke of his pen, President Biden could erase it and give beleaguered former college students a chance to start their lives anew. So far, he has refused to do so, saying instead that he wants to reach a bipartisan deal with Republicans in Congress to erase $10,000 in student loan debts per debtor. In response to Biden's dithering, the Debt Collective has launched a campaign to pressure Biden over the first 100 days of his administration to go all in on student debt, student loan debt abolition. We are joined this evening by Umi Hoke, organizing director of the Debt Collective and a student loan debtor herself, and by Astra Taylor, documentary filmmaker, author, and co-founder of the Debt Collective. Umi and Astra, welcome to WBAI.
2: Thanks for having us. Thanks for
0: having us. Sure thing. So Astra, can you start by telling us about the origins of the Debt Collective and what it has been able to accomplish uh, to date?
2: The Debt Collective is a union for debtors that has its roots in Occupy Wall Street. So it pains me almost to say that that's now 10 years ago. It's 2021. So that's we had Occupy in 2011. And what A lot of us discovered back then at Zuccotti Park was that a whole lot of us were attracted to that movement because we were in debt, right? Of course, there was the problem of underwater mortgages after the banking uh, sector collapsed and the banks got bailed out, we got sold out, but people had all sorts of personal debts. They had student loans, they had medical debts, they had credit card debts, and we felt that there was something to this that actually it it actually was a symptom of the way our economy was increasingly financialized. Right. So wages have stagnated since the 1970s and credit has filled the gap and we've been forced to debt finance basic needs. We've moved from a welfare state or an imperfect welfare state to a debt fair state. Right. So we have to borrow to go to school. We have to borrow for our health care and we have to put our medical bills on our credit cards so we decided to organize around this and had this vision of a debtor's union. What if debtors realized that their debts were actually a source of power? We launched the first ever student debt strike with students of a predatory for-profit college chain, Corinthian Colleges, Inc., a huge for-profit college chain that served hundreds of thousands of students. These are megacorps uh, that take federal funding. They, they access federal student loan funding and bury students in debt, usually vulnerable students from... Uh, uh, Immigrant backgrounds, first generation students, veterans, single mothers, people of color, et cetera. They went on strike. Hundreds um, joined the movement. Then thousands were able to dispute their debts through some legal tools we made. And we, ultimate ha- we ultimately helped win a billion dollars of debt cancellation and put uh, the idea of a student, uh, that student loan could be canceled on the national agenda by showing it could be done. And through our legal research, With that campaign in 2015, 2016, we identified this authority called Compromise and Settlement, which is the authority we are demanding that Joe Biden use to cancel student debt. So that is the center of the Biden Jubilee 100 campaign that um, uh, I'm supporting and that UMI is part of.
0: Yes. And uh, speaking of the 100 Days campaign, uh, UMI, can you uh, tell us more about uh, the organizing that's uh, going into that and, and how you envision it, uh, changing Biden's position of only wanting to pursue incremental debt relief with the uh, bipartisan support of the Republicans who don't really seem interested in providing any relief at all.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, as Astra mentioned, I am one of the Biden Jubilee 100s. So there are um, 100 of us who symbolically represent Joe Biden's first 100 days, which is when we're demanding that he makes um, this, uh, he takes these steps toward full cancellation of student loan debt. Um, and we are um, withholding our student debt payments. Um, we are taking a um, fierce um, economic decision to say that much like a militant strike, which is somehow the only ways um, that workers can raise their own wages, we're going to withhold our payments um, and make sure that um, people know how important this issue is. And Joe Biden hears from us in this campaign and recognizes that this is the time when he needs to take swift action. and He needs to take it soon. And that action should actually be canceling all student loan debt. Um, So I personally owe over $70,000 in student loan debt, um, which I acquired um, doing my undergrad and graduate school. um, And I'm refusing to pay it alongside these hundreds of, this hundred other. And in total, we represent millions of dollars in student loan debt um, that's currently not being paid and won't be paid until Joe Biden does the right thing.
0: And, and what would it mean for your life if, if Biden uh, abolished the debt and, and you didn't have that hanging over you anymore?
3: It would be transformative. If Joe Biden were to cancel student loan debt, it would be transformative to my life and and not just my life, my family's as well. Um, And um, the 100 of us who are on debt strike, we've all shared on our website, the Biden Jubilee 100 website, what exactly student debt relief would mean for us and that cancellation, how it would change our lives. Um, And for so many, it would mean things like being able to buy homes, being able to start families, um, being able to um, take a career that we actually wanted to do and not just one that pays the bills um, and being able to really thrive in our country and do things within our own community that we aren't able to do now. Um, one of the obvious reasons why Joe Biden should cancel student loan debt is because we could take that money and invest it in our communities and actually be able um, to support local businesses and be able to thrive um, ourselves and put that money back into our economy. Um, so the return on being a, on him canceling the $1.7 trillion is billions of dollars. that's actually going back into our country and going back into, Families um, and um, and making people's
0: lives better. So, a form of stimulus,
3: without question,
0: right? And uh, uh, Astra, someone who uh, really put debt in a fresh new light was David Graeber. Uh, his best-selling book from 2011, "Debt: The First Five Thousand Years," came out shortly before Occupy Wall Street uh, got going, and he argued that debt repayment wasn't so much about morality is about power relations as he describes in this uh, clip i think we're going to run here
4: how debt is distributed has very little to do with fiscal responsibility it's mainly about power the wealthy have a million ways to wriggle out of debt the debt always gets passed off on those least able to pay so when the government runs a deficit creditors rich people again end up holding a lot of government bonds which pay quite low rates of interest The government taxes you to pay it off. All that's really happening when it runs a surplus is that same government takes that same debt and effectively transfers it directly to you as higher mortgage debt, payday loans, and so on, at much higher rates of interest. Yet, somehow, taxes never seem to go down. If the government balances its books, it makes it almost impossible for you to balance yours.
0: Astra, your reaction to to David's uh... A critique of, of debt and, and how we think about it.
2: Well, oh, it makes me miss my friend, David, David, you know, I know, you know, knew him as well. He actually recruited me into this effort, this offshoot at during the days of occupy wall street. And, you know, David was exactly right. It, Debt is a power relation, and it masquerades as a contract between two equals, right? So you imagine, well, you, you signed on the dotted line at 17 to take out these student loans, right? This is your choice, so now you're on the hook, instead of looking at the broader social conditions. So one refrain that the Debt Collective likes to use is, you know, we are not in debt because we live beyond our means. We're in debt because we're denied the means to live. We have medical debt because there isn't universal health care. We have student loans because there isn't free public education. And so this we have to puncture this phony morality that exists around debt. And we also have to point out the double standard, which is one thing that David was getting to in that clip. Corporate debtors and rich debtors walk away from their debts all the time. The banks got bailed out. We got sold out. Or look what happened last year right after COVID hit. We saw incredibly generous subsidies of corporate debtors. By the federal government. So corporate debtors got handouts, these over-leveraged companies, they had taken on too much debt and given too much money to their shareholders and you know not invested in actual production or in their uh improving the wages of their workers. And so the federal government helped them without batting an eye. And so we're saying, you know, it's a myth that debts can't be written down or canceled. We see it happening for the powerful, and it should happen for regular people. David also puts us in a historical context. There have been debtors' revolts that have pushed forward and helped advance the cause of democracy and equality through time, you know, and and what the Debt Collective is doing and what the Corinthian 15 did and now the Biden Jubilee 100 are doing is part of a long, you know, it's part of this long tradition of debtors rising up and saying, you know, we can't pay and we won't pay and we shouldn't have to pay because actually these debts are immoral to begin with. The immoral party is not the debtor. It's actually the creditor. It's actually the system that is creating this exploitative dynamic.
0: Mm. And uh, uh, Umi uh, or or Astra, uh, one question I have about this is, uh, do you foresee a a backlash if if, uh, student loan debt was written down or even entirely abolished uh, from people who either uh, would say I paid off my student loans or – you know i worked my way through college or you know i you know gave up um you know certain uh, pleasures in my life to save up money to send my children to college for all the people who would feel like they played by the rules uh how do you see them uh, reacting to this if you all succeeded
2: what do you think of me
3: I think, um, I think that's a great question. I, um, I really feel for those people who struggled so hard to pay off their student debt. Um, and um, through that struggle, they themselves must have seen as well how unfair that debt was. Um, and so I think the question for all into the future is how do we make higher education in this more affordable? How do we make it free? How do we move toward college for all and create a system where everyone can truly thrive and have the education that they want and need um, so that our country can continue into the future? We're in a crisis like no other. um, And all of these increased student loan debts and all the other debts that people are struggling with are going to create problems that are going to outlast all of us. So what are the solutions that we're addressing together? Um, Canceling all student loan debt is a way of taking us on that track toward college for all, toward actually building that fair system where everyone can actually um, enjoy education as a public good as it used to be. Um, So... I yeah I I think in response that is exact that w- that's what I would say and I th- I hope that they can see that by canceling student loan debt and working with us to make sure that we can actually make education a public good we can create a better country into the future.
2: I would add that I'm actually someone who paid off their student debt so when occupy came around and I was joining this nascent movement I had just defaulted on my student loans I was I had was really struggling economically and I'm not there anymore I I was you know worked and paid off my student loans. And I don't want anyone else to go through that. I mean, I think we don't, my opinion is, you know, future generations shouldn't suffer just because we've suffered. I think we also have to understand that it's not a personal benefit. So you all have mentioned that it's an economic stimulus of sorts. We'd also benefit from people being able to pursue the public interest, we'd actually benefit from doctors and lawyers and dentists getting their student loans canceled. I invoke those professions because that's often what the right says. They said, oh my gosh, what if a doctor gets their debt canceled? Well, that'd be great. Then they could serve uh, poor communities and be a general practitioner, right? Then a doctor, sorry, a lawyer could be a public defender instead of going into corporate law. So I think there would be all of these Benefits that we don't even have the tools to measure quantitatively. They would be qualitative benefits that I think would uh, redound through the broader society.
0: Great. And uh, Astra, you recently released a new documentary film uh, with The Intercept uh, called You Are Not Alone. And we we have here a a short clip of one of the debtors uh, you interviewed speaking
1: To me, it was more or less, even going to college was like a job. It was like, you got to go, you can't miss because you got to get this degree because this is how you're going to get, you know, further along in life. And in reality, that wasn't my reality. I mean, I did get the degree. I got the bachelor's. But at the end of the day, I had this two hundred plus dollars of student debt. So trying to go to a bank and get a a loan or mortgage, it was like, they're like, yeah, right. (laughs) Like, are you serious? Sometimes I think I made my situation worse off going to college, but that was the reason I I did it because I just wanted to make a better life for me and my kids.
0: All right. That was uh, one of the interviewees from uh, You Are Not Alone, uh, Astra Taylor's uh, latest uh, documentary. Uh, Astra, who are the debtors out there? and, And... How hard is it to get them involved with a campaign like this? There's a lot of shame around debt. Um, Obviously, a lot of people are very stressed out in their lives. Uh, Do you foresee being able to draw not just hundreds, but thousands or tens of thousands of people into this campaign?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. I want to begin by saying that the voice people just heard was Pamela Hunt, and she was one of the Corinthian 15. She was one of the people in the original debt strike. So she had, indeed, $200,000 of debt, but she did get the – through our militant organizing and through our campaigning, did get her private, uh, get the student loans from the private for-profit college that she attended canceled. So she had significant debt cancellation. She has loans from other educational experiences, so she's invested in our demand to cancel all student debt. But she's an example, actually, of the fact that collective organizing works. Debtors are hard to organize in some ways. So when you organize a traditional labor union, you meet people at the workplace, you share a factory floor, and you organize against the boss for higher wages or benefits. Debtors are dispersed. We we share an economic relationship, right? So we share a creditor, and that creditor can be a company or it can be the state in the case of many student loans, the advantage, I suppose, is that debt sticks to people. So it sticks to you if you lose your job, if you get a new job, if you go to school, if you retire. So debt has this stickiness. So we have to organize across distance. We have to find each other. But when we do, there is enormous uh, power to be tapped. And I, you know, I'm someone who thinks working people can't afford to leave power on the table. So I think we should have labor unions, tenant unions, debtors unions, all kinds of unions. Um, the debt collective is, uh, a, an organization that anyone can go online to debtcollective.org and join. And we're making the road by walking because this isn't a model that's existed before. That's why we brought the brilliant UMI on board as a full-time organizing director, not just as a, a a striker, but to help us figure this out because the sad thing is the majority of people are in debt. And I think you're exactly right to say shame's part of it. So first you need to realize you are not alone, right? This is not... You, you're not in a unique situation if you're suffering and stressed out because you can't uh, pay those bills at the end of the month and, and that there's power in numbers. So we invite everyone to find us. And I think there's, there's, you know, right now we're in contact with, ten, uh, you know, um, thousands of debtors and there's room for tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands more in our movement.
0: Great. And we have to go here in 15 seconds, but uh, uh, for anyone who's interested to, uh... Is there a, a URL uh, someplace on the Internet people can go and, and find find you guys?
3: Absolutely. Check out DebtCollective.org um, and uh, join the union, join the campaign, show your support, um, and together we can win it.
0: All righty. Umi Hoke and Astra Taylor fighting for student debt abolition. Thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you.
0: Okay. When we come back, we will talk about one high-risk group that has been almost entirely ignored during the pandemic, New York's nearly 50,000 prisoners, and the push to win parole for older prisoners who no longer pose a risk to society. I hear something
3: The sound of the men working on the chain That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Gang. That's the sound of the men working on the
0: chain. Gang. Chain Gang by Sam Cook. And you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. You can find us online at independent.org. That's I N D Y. P E N D N T dot O R G. Turning to our next segment, as the COVID 19 pandemic rages across New York City and state, one of the most vulnerable groups is the older incarcerated population in New York state prisons. Release Aging People in Prison or RAP is led by formerly incarcerated persons. The group is campaigning for the state legislature to back a package of proposed reforms that would make it easier for prisoners to obtain parole especially for those over the age of 50. About 20% of New York state's prisoners are over that age. And and, and that's an age at which RAP says they have aged out of crime. Joining us this evening is Jose Saldana, director of RAP. Jose, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yes. Uh, so, uh, first of all, can you talk about the, the changes to the parole laws that you all are seeking in this year's legislative session in Albany? And why do you all feel this needs to be the year that it finally gets done?
1: Yes. Uh, but first, let me just say that today and for a long time, there are more people serving life sentences or virtual life sentences at any time in the history of our state with little or no opportunity for release. So the men and women that we are talking about, they didn't come in at 50 years old. Some came in as young as 15 and 16 years old. Today, they're 55 and 60. Others came in in their 20s, mid 20s, they're closer to 70 and have languished in prison for 35, 40 years. So this has created a health crisis in New York and across the the state, that men and women are languishing in prison unnecessarily for longer periods of time, little opportunity for release. And in between, we have them getting old, sick, and dying in prison when the the vast majority of them were not sentenced to death by incarceration. So we, we promote two bills that would address this intergenerational uh, incarceration of people of color, mostly black and brown people. And it will address the harm that was done to the communities that they come from and the devastation that was inflicted upon their families for generations. These two bills are the Elder Parole Bill, which provides that if a person has reached 55 years old and has served 15 years, he or she will be entitled to a parole interview. It's not automatic release. It's just an interview. It provides hope for people to be released at an age where they can continue to be productive. Because we're talking about people that have been productive for decades during incarceration. Mm-hmm. And the next bill is the fair and Town, the parole bill, which will stop the parole board's culture of perpetual punishment, adding years and decades to a person's minimum term set by the courts and will require them to evaluate who the person is today that is appearing before them now, who she or he was decades ago.
0: And, and how do how do things look in Albany as far as the reception you're getting of, uh, from from legislators? Is is there a strong interest in this?
1: Yes, uh, we believe that we have a good a, a good sizable amount of co-sponsors in our bills. Even during this pandemic, we was able to organize within our communities and we was able to also address our legislators, especially those who represent communities that are impacted by these policies of mass incarceration. And we do have the supermajority in, in in both houses, the Senate and the Assembly. So we're very um optimistic that this may Provide us with a greater opportunity to to get these bills. At least have them uh, put on the floor for for a vote in the Senate and in the Assembly.
0: And, and can you talk about your own experience with uh, going uh, up before the parole board? You did a 38 years of time, and I, I believe you had something like four appearances before the parole board before before they really start to listen to your 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 situation and and address you as who you were a- after your time in prison and not what you had done decades before. Yes, I, I was
1: I was initially convicted for attempted murder of a New York City police officer uh, in 1979. That's when it happened. And, and I served 38 years. I was released because RAP. RAP was actually instrumental in my release. The early members of RAP, the founders, um uh, what they did is they they changed the composition of New York State road board. They exposed the racism and the unfairness that's been going on for decades by commissioners from law enforcement uh, law enforcement people with law enforcement backgrounds actually dominated the New York State road board for four or close to five decades so and these commissioners would would not would not ever actually evaluate a person on who he or she is today instead they would focus entirely on the crime that was committed in my case decades ago and they exposed these commissioners for making racist and inappropriate and uh, unfair remarks during parole hearings and they they presented all this evidence to the governor's office and when their term expires the governor did not reappoint them Instead, he uh, appointed six new commissioners from a diversified background. One of the newly appointed commissioners was my lead commissioner when I appeared before my fifth parole board, and she, unlike the other hearings, she only asked me one question about the crime that I committed in 1979, and then she went on to say, "Well, now, let's talk about what you've been doing the last 38 years of your life." And based on my accomplishments, that was before all the other commissioners, before all the other commissioners that denied me parole. She
0: valued my accomplishments and released me. Right, and and, and now you're doing th- this work that you're doing. And, and can you talk a little bit about um, the concept of aging out of, of crime since there's a, a lot of fear-mongering around uh, parole? Uh, why why it's so important for uh, the parole boards and others to, to keep this in mind?
1: Well, the recess is... is... It's clearly evident that as a person ages, the person is less likely to commit another crime. I was released at 66 years old. So at at that age, that category of people have a less than 1% chance of recidivating, less than a half a percent chance of ever committing another crime. And all this is readily available to these commissioners. In fact, in, in one of my commissioners, me, he actually said at your age and, and, and with over 30 years in prison, you are the least likely to ever commit another crime. But yet he denied me for So the evidence is totally, the science is totally being ignored. But that's not the only thing that, that should be considered in our case, is what the person, and we'll talk about men I left behind who they are today. They have we have men inside right now who were my mentors who should have been walking out with me. Their accomplishments to define who they are today. Not just their age, although that's important, but also consider the extraordinary accomplishments that they have they have made toward their own rehabilitation and helping others transform their life.
0: Right. Uh, do, do, do you can you uh, maybe describe a couple of these people, for, just so we we. Oh yes, sense.
1: absolutely. You know, there's a man right now. He's 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 75 years old. He uh he's a survivor of cancer. He ha- he is a survivor of COVID nineteen. His name is Robert Lynn. He's been incarcerated for close to four decades, and, and he will not appear before a parole board in the near future. I think he has something like 11 more years before. He actually is eligible for parole. The elder parole bill will benefit him immediately because he has nearly four decades in and he's 75 years old. You have another man by the name of Kareem Latif, likewise in his seventies, clear nearly four decades in and he will not appear before the parole board until he's in his eighties. The elder parole bill will benefit him and it will benefit hundreds of others like them, and they will all the fair and sound parole bill will actually benefit everybody who has a parole eligible sentence of life. And they should be released on their first parole hearing rather than be resentenced by the parole.
0: Right. And uh, can you tell us a little bit more about rap, uh, how it, it got started in, in the role of uh, uh, your founder, uh, Farid, who's unfortunately it's no Farid, longer
1: with us? Mujahid, Mujahid Fareed was an extraordinary human being. He was a brilliant litigator during his over three decades in prison. He was sentenced to 15 years to life. A judge could have gave him the max of 25 years to life, but instead he elected to give him 15 years to life. That makes a statement, but the parole board ignored that. He appeared before the parole board after 15 years with four college degrees, which included two masters, and he created the most comprehensive, effective, therapeutic program to address the HIV AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s. And this the value of this program is that it is actually being facilitated by incarcerated men and women in just about every prison in the state of New York. He is accredited with others with creating this program. But when he appeared before the parole board with his college degrees and being one of the founders of PACE, The parole board did not value anything that he's done and instead focused entirely on the crime and would deny him parole for 18 years. Added 18 years to his 15 years of life. At his 10th parole board, they finally decide to release him. He's seen that this paradigm of perpetual punishment has destroyed literally thousands of black and brown families over the decades and he got together with two other formerly incarcerated women, and they created this wondrous program that we call RAP.
0: Mm. And, and you all are doing uh, – we have to wrap up here in a minute, but uh, you all are doing a, a, a virtual uh, lobbying day tomorrow. Uh, uh, can you say a word about that? And also uh, for people who would want to uh, find out more or get involved in supporting your work, go, where can they go to find out more information?
1: Yes, uh, anybody can just go to our website. That's RAPPCampaign.com. That's RAPPCampaign.com. We have launching, we are launching an advocacy day tomorrow. Uh, um, we would we welcome everybody to register. Uh, even if you, you may have a hard time registering because I think we have probably reached out max, but try it anyway. And, and, and if we can, we welcome you. We welcome everyone to not just uh visit our website, but get involved. Get involved by addressing these issues of elderly people immediately dying in prison with your uh, senator or assembly person. Start the discussion in your communities on why it is inhumane to keep people who have languished in prison for decades when they should safely be returned back to their families.
0: Okay. Uh, Jose Saldana, Director of Release Aging People in Prison or, or RAP. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on the Independent News Hour. Thank you. All righty. Uh, when we come back, we uh, hope to be talking with the uh, New York City mayoral candidate Art Chang. Uh, so uh, anyway, we'll be back after after this short break.
1: I'm much too fast to take that test to ch- 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 change it.
0: Changes by David Bowie, and you're listening to the Independent News Hour on WBAI New York. I'm John Tarleton. Before we continue with our third segment, I want to encourage everyone who can do so to give generously to WBAI. Uh, you can do so by calling 516-620-3602 or going straight to give number to WBAI.org. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. And now we turn to the mayor's race. It's a wide open field with more than twenty candidates and no clear frontrunner. Art Chang is one of those candidates. He's worked at the New York City Law Department, the New York State Empire Development Corporation, the Indiana Department of Child Services, the City University of New York, and he worked to help establish the New York the NYC votes website, an all-purpose portal for New York election information. He was also a managing director at JP Morgan Chase an unlikely, unlikely incubator for a progressive mayoral candidate, but he's in the race. Art, thanks for joining us on WBAI 99.5 FM.
4: Thank you, Josh, so much for, for having me here. Um, it's, a, it's an honor to be on WBAI. I've been listening since 1985 when I moved to New York, and um, the Independ- I'm really honored to be on The Independent because you really were a pioneer in truly independent journalism, And uh, that really uh, it it really kind of was a a precursor to what was what is so needed today, the sort of the anti big media journalism. So thank you for everything you've done. Well,
0: thank you. Uh, Thank you for saying that. Uh, Now, with with your campaign, uh, you haven't held any uh, elective office previously. Uh, What do you believe you bring to the table that none of the other mayoral candidates does in terms of your life experience and what you've accomplished? as well as the platform that you're running on?
4: Um, well, the life experience of it is, is pretty unique. Um, I was uh, born in Jim Crow, Atlanta, um, and grew up in an all-white school district in Akron, Ohio, um, where I faced racism on the street and domestic violence at home. Um, I know what it's like to feel afraid when I walk out onto the street. And in my case, it was because if, when I saw white boys walking down the street in a group, I would cross the street. I also know what it's like to be afraid for my mother's safety and wonder if she's going to be alive the next morning. And I also know what it's like to fear the police as much as I wanted them to help me. Um, and then, you know, I took that energy and um, ended up becoming um, the second man to graduate with a women, women's studies degree from Yale. Um, and then that powered really, um, you know, my 30-year career track record in public service but also a 35 year parallel track record um, creating innovation in the private sector.
0: Hmm. And you've made providing universal childcare uh, here in the city a central plank of your campaign platform. Why is that? And, and how do you plan to carry it out if you're elected?
4: Yes. Um, we have a, a childcare crisis at the moment um, that has that is really affecting parents, but especially women. Um, last year, as of September, over 800,000 jobs were lost nationally by women, and primarily by Black and Brown women. In December alone, um, 100% of the job loss was borne by women. 144,000 jobs were lost um, for a you know all by women. And again, overwhelmingly black and brown communities, poor communities. And so the impact is quite significant. And so this has really created a setback for women that has really threatens to undo um, decades of progress for women in pay equity, career advancement, and to achieve independence. Um, so child care is, is is so important because child care is the beginning of how we start to reestablish um the balance between in families, and there are several different things. Work is certainly important. You know, women can get back to work. They can go and finish their degrees. They can um, take care of other, the their elder parents. Um, they can do other things that are important for their own well-being. Um, but we all know about the inequities, the so social inequities from health care and education, and as we know, this very early stage of development is absolutely critical for the well-being of the child, and then therefore for the longer-term well-being of the family and the community. So we can establish a level playing field from ages one to four with nutrition, um, healthcare monitoring, um, monitoring things like learning development and physical development. Uh, to ensure that these children are all best prepared to be able to succeed in society. A a third reason this is important is because these places can become the center points for community delivery of services, from maternal health to prenatal health to postnatal, dealing with postnatal issues. Um, For truly needy families, this can be a place for distributing Products like diapers and and uh, formula and other things that are that really will help the lives of these families, and the last and maybe the most important thing is that our vision for universal child care is um, community based. There are thousands of women today in the city who t- take care of multiple children, generally for no pay or sub minimum wage. This is a way for us to actually significantly augment the number of community-based organizations putting child care in the communities that currently actually don't have child care um, and provide jobs, real jobs for women who have previously been unpaid for this work. This could be a significant economic boost for underserved communities. Mm. And,
0: and you've previously said that you're most proud of your role in establishing a uh, NYC votes uh... Can you talk about that a little bit more and, and why that means so much to
4: you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think one of the real roles of government is to use the available innovations to really speed and really enable the, the mission that they set out to accomplish. Um, I mean, in universal childcare, for example, is a great example of someplace where we could use this. Um, and I'll come back to that in a sec. But the campaign finance board really had two objectives with NYC votes. Um, the first was to be able to have a much more user friendly digital way to provide even better information that was available in the voter guide um, to, to, uh, to every voter across the city. Um, the second reason was that the other mission of the campaign finance board was to um, increase the number of first time and smaller can- candidates who could then effectively run. And before the the regulations, especially around credit card processing of small transactions, was incredibly burdensome and and onerous. So what NYC Votes did was it solved both sides of the equation. We created a very easy-to-use, user-friendly way to get information about everybody who's on your ballot in New York City. And on the other hand, we made it much easier and much more possible for small and first-time candidates to run. And, you know, I'm one of those people. And, you know, you can look around and see how many people are running for the first time this year. And there are historic numbers of candidates. And it is, a, it is a, I think, a, a testament to how successful this has been. But going back to why digital is so important in, in all situations and why we need to think about technology for the data and the transparency and ease of use, is that in a child welfare, in a child, in a child um, uh, universal child care setting, we have a way then to be able to um, record the progress of children from a very early age into, into school. So we, we already will know their immunization records and other things that provide a great convenience to parents and families. Because um, if you have kids, you certainly know the hassles of, of getting immunization records and delivering them every year. Um, it also creates a way for us to sort of have an easy, easier on-ramp into dealing with issues like, you know, learning differences um, as they go into school. Um, and then finally, like one of the big problems today with universal pre-K-4 um, is that it is extremely difficult for parents to navigate the system for figuring out where to go and how to get access to UPK-4. Um we can start to solve that problem and we can start making it much easier for parents and families to be able to take, get access to these valuable services. Right. And uh, I mean,
0: I mean, beyond these, uh, I mean, these sort of uh, in, innovations uh, that you want to bring into, to city government, uh, how do you in, envision uh, if you were the, if you were mayor, uh, you're really ra- rallying this city to, um, address the pandemic and its aftermath and the, the economic uh, wreckage we're uh, dealing with, um, that's going to be a tall order for whoever gets the job.
4: Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the projected budgets, the deficits, you know, just are being very, very difficult. People look at also all the failures of the de Blasio administration as signs of how difficult government should be. But there are some actual steps that we can take to both of those issues, and then enable us to actually create a vision for how we move forward. Um, just one thing on the budget that I wanna point out is, um, you know, very few people seem to be focused on the fact that the city's budget has grown by about $20 billion in the past eight years. Um, and almost all of that growth has come from overhead. It's come from added administration and overhead um, in every department, including the police. So when you think about, you know, what we're expending our money on as a city and what we should be spending money on, there seems to be a huge opportunity to actually mo- reallocate money from overhead into essential services. So I think the the, the fiscal picture is, is very worrisome, but we need to take a hard look at that budget and figure out what we can do about it. Um, the second thing, which has to do with, you know, this sort of dysfunction, general dysfunction in the government, is that... There are a couple, two really important missing pieces. And I'll actually make it three really important missing pieces. The first one is that the mayor operates the city in siloed agencies. So there is virtually no coordination between the agencies for almost anything. And agencies often conflict with each other and they have overlapping roles and jurisdictions. And this is very painful for everybody, whether you're trying to get benefits yeah. or whether you're trying to get a building permit or trying to operate a restaurant.
0: Right. We, we've got about 30 more seconds, unfortunately, if you want to wrap up your thoughts and let people know where they can find out more about your campaign.
4: Great. Thanks. So the third area is really collaboration, and that's really about shortening the distance between the mayor and the people. Um, I represent that by having open office hours, which are available on my website. You can go to chang.nyc, and anyone can meet me. Just click on the link and select the time that's convenient for you. I run Open Office hours seven days a week, and I'd love to meet you.
0: Fantastic. Art Chang, running for mayor of New York this year in a wide-open Democratic primary. Thank you for joining us on the Independent News Hour.
4: Thank you so much, John, for having me. You bet. Okay, take care.
0: All right. That, ju- that just about wraps up tonight's show. Many thanks to our producer, Alma Gagarian. Next week's show will be guest hosted by my colleague Olivia Regio. A reminder one more time to give to WBAI today. You can give at 516 620 3602. Again that number 516-620-3602 or go straight to give to wbai.org. Be well and stay stay safe out there. I wonder, I wonder,
1: I wonder, will it take me under- no parole, no rubbers Going go, for imagine law with no undercovers Just some thoughts for the mind I take a glimpse into time Watch the flint, read the world is mine and I rule the world Imagine that,
0: imagine that. I free all my